Chapter Nine of the Bishop's Apron by W. Somerset Maugham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. It was almost with a sense of disillusion that Winnie realized the fight was won. Feeling very truly that opposition would only have increased her determination to marry Bertram Railing, she would have been pleased, in heroic mood, to do more desperate battle for her love. She was like a man who puts out all his strength to lift an iron weight and finds it of cardboard, light and hollow, so that he is sent sprawling on the ground. Winnie had braced herself to strenuous efforts, and since they were unneeded the affair gained somewhat the look of a tragedy turned to farce. The conditions which the canon had set were precise but easy. He gave no sanction to the engagement, but offered no hostility only, for a year, nothing must be said about it to anyone. Railing was invited to luncheon at St. Gregory's Vicarage. Canon Spratt, though making no more than a passing, facetious reference to the connection with Winnie, behaved very politely. He was friendly and even cordial. The girl knew that both he and Lady Sophia examined her lover critically, and though she thought herself detestable, she could not help watching him also, nervously, in case he committed a solecism. But he was so frank, so natural, that everything he did gained a peculiar charm, and his good looks made Winnie love him each moment more devotedly. She was curious to know her aunt's opinion, but that the elderly lady took care neither by word nor manner to give till she was asked outright my dear if you love him and your father approves i don't think there's anything more to be said she smiled i suppose he'll go into parliament when you're married and i dare say it's not a bad thing that he's a radical the liberals want clever young men with good connections and doubtless your father will be able to get him made something or other he wouldn't consent to be made anything said winnie with scornful pride after he's been married a few years, he'll no doubt take anything he can get, answered Sophia, mildly. Ah, but you don't understand. We don't want to think of ourselves. We want to think of others. Have you ever faced the fact that people will ask you to their parties, but won't dream of asking him? Do you think I should go anywhere without my husband? I'm afraid you'll be rather bored, suggested Lady Sophia. Winnie reflected over this for a moment then, chasing away a frown of indecision from her face, glanced happily at her aunt. "'At all events you'll allow that he's very handsome.' "'Certainly,' said Lady Sophia. "'I have only one fault to find with him. Aren't his legs a little short? I wonder if he can wear a frock-coat without looking stumpy.' "'Fortunately he's absolutely indifferent to what he wears,' laughed Winnie. "'Yes, I've noticed that. His clothes look as if they were bought ready-made, you must really take him to a good tailor. Canon Spratt would much have liked to inspect Mrs. Railing and her daughter, but feared to excite Winnie's suspicion. He contented himself with urging Bertram to take her to Peckham, and when he made the suggestion, watched the youth keenly for signs of disinclination to produce his people. He saw nothing. I can't make out if the boy is simple or crafty, he said to himself irritably. It never struck him that Railing could have so great an affection for his mother as to be indifferent to her defects. "'She's done everything for me,' he told Winnie, when they were in the train, on their way to visit her. "'My father died when I was a lad, and it's only by her strength of will and sheer hard work that I've done anything at all.' Winnie, overflowing with love for the handsome fellow, 
was prepared to look upon his mother with favourable eyes. Her imagination presented to her a Roman matron, toiling with silent patience to fit her son for a great work. There was something heroic in the thought of this unassuming person, educated in the hard school of poverty, preparing with inflexible courage the instrument for the regeneration of a people. She expected to find a powerful, stern woman whom, if it was impossible to love, she might at least admire. Winnie was sure that Mrs. Railing had a thousand interesting things to say about Bertram. "'I want to know what you were like when you were a boy,' she said, in her pretty, enthusiastic way. "'I want her to tell me so much.' He kissed her fingers, in the well-made gloves, and looked at her with happy pride. "'Do you care for me, really?' he asked. "'Sometimes I can't believe it. It seems too good to be true.' Her eyes filled with tears. I feel so insignificant and so contemptible. I wish you knew how grateful I am to you for loving me." From the train they had a glimpse of the Thames glistening vaguely in the sunny mist. But they came soon to long rows of little grey houses, which displayed with callous effrontery the details of their poverty. In the grimy backyards clothes were hung out to dry on lines. Winnie, anxious to see only the more cheerful side of things, turned away to occupy herself entirely with Bertram's dark comeliness. On reaching Peckham she looked for a cab, but her lover, to whom the idea of such luxury did not occur, set out to walk, and she, remembering that in future she must resist extravagance, dutifully followed. "'It's only about a mile and a bit,' he said, stepping out briskly. At first glance Winnie was not displeased with the bustle of the street there was a welcome freshness in the air. The pavements were thronged, the roadway noisy with the rumble of buses and the clatter of tradesmen's carts. The shops were gay with all their crowded wares. After the dull respectability of South Kensington, the vivacity and the busy strenuous eagerness were very exhilarating. The girl felt herself more in touch with humanity, and the surrounding life made her blood tingle pleasantly. She felt a singular glow as she realized what a manifold excitement there was merely in living. "'I don't think I should mind a house in the suburbs at all,' she said. But at last, turning out of the main road, they came into a street which seemed interminable. There were little brick villas on either side in a long straight row, and each house with its bow window, its prim door and slate roof, was exactly like its fellow. Each had a tiny plot of lawn in front of it, about four feet square. The sky was grey, for the fitful sun had vanished, and the wind blew bitterly. The street, empty and cheerless, seemed very dreary. Winnie shuddered a little, feeling a sudden strange enmity towards the inhabitants of these dull places. She soon grew tired, for she was unused to walking, and asked whether they had still far to go. "'It's only just around the corner,' he said. They turned, and another long row of little houses appeared, differing not at all from the first, and the likeness between each of these made her dizzy. "'It's worse than Bayswater,' she murmured, with something like a groan of dismay. The exhilaration which at first she had felt was fast vanishing under fatigue, and the east wind and the dull solitariness. Finally they came to a tiny villa, cheek by jowl with its neighbours, that appeared primmer, more sordid and grossly matter-of-fact than them all. Yet the name, let into the fanlight above the door, in gold letters, was its only dissimilarity. It was called Balmoral. In the windows were cheap lace curtains. 
"'Here we are,' said Bertram, producing a latch-key. He led her into a narrow passage, the floor of which was covered with malodorous linoleum, and then into the parlour. It was a very small room, formal, notwithstanding Bertram's books neatly arranged on shelves. There was a close smell, as though it were rarely used, and the windows seldom opened. A table took up most of the floor. It was hidden by a large red cloth stamped with a black pattern, but Winnie guessed at once that its top was of deal and the legs elaborately carved in imitation mahogany. Against the wall was a piano, and all around a set of chairs covered with red velvet. On each side of the fireplace were armchairs of the same sort. Winnie's quick eye took in also the elaborate gilded clock, with a shepherd kneeling to a shepherdess under a glass case, and this was flanked by candlesticks to match, similarly protected. The chimney-piece was swathed in pale green draperies. Opposite the looking-glass was a painting in oils of the brig Mary Ann, on which Thomas Railing had sailed many an adventurous journey, and next to this was a portrait of the seaman himself, no less wooden than the ship. He wore black broadcloth in a funereal type, and side-whiskers of great luxuriance. "'Mother!' cried Bertram. "'Mother!' "'Coming!' It was a fat, good-natured voice, but even in that one word the cockney accent was aggressive and unmistakable. Mrs. Railing appeared, smoothing the sleeves of the Sunday dress which she had just put on. She was a short, stout woman, of an appearance politely termed comfortable. Her red face, indistinct of feature, shone with good humour and with soap, the odour of which proceeded from her with undue distinctness. Her hair was excessively black. There was certainly nothing in her to remind one of Bertram's sensitive, beautiful face. Smiling pleasantly, she shook hands with Winnie. "'Louis hasn't come in yet, Bertie,' she said, and the lacking aspirate sent a blush to Winnie's cheek. "'Fine day, isn't it?' she added, by way of beginning the conversation. Winnie agreed that it was, and Bertram suggested that they should have tea at once. "'It's all ready,' said his mother. She looked somewhat uncertain at the bell, as though not sure whether it would be discreet to ring, and gave her son a questioning glance. Then, making up her mind, she pulled it. The shrill sound was heard easily in the parlour, and Mrs. Railing remarked complacently, "'It is rung.' But there was no other answer than the sound of voices in the kitchen. "'Is anyone here?' asked Bertram. "'Mrs. Cooper popped in to see me, and she's been helping me get the tea ready.' Bertram's face darkened, and his mother turned to Winnie with an explanation. "'Bertie can't abide, Mrs. Cooper, somehow,' she said, in her voluble, good-tempered way. "'You don't know Mrs. Cooper, do you? She lives in Shepherd's Bush. Such a nice woman. And a thorough lady.' "'Oh, yes,' said Winnie, politely. "'But Bertie can't abide her. I don't deny that she does take a little drop more than's good for her, but she's at a rare lot of trouble.' Bertram said nothing, and in an awkward pause they waited for the tea. "'I think I'd better go and see if anything has happened,' said Mrs. Railing. "'We don't generally have tea in here, except when we have company, and that girl o' mine can't be trusted to do anything unless I'm watching of her all the time.' But Railing rang the bell again impatiently. After a further sound of voices raised in acrimonious dispute, the door was opened about six inches, and the dishevelled head of a frowsy girl was thrust in. "'Do you want anything?' 
do i want anything cried mrs railing indignantly i suppose you think i ring the bell for me elf i suppose i've got nothing better to do than to ring the bell all day long didn't i tell you to bring the tea the moment that bertie come in well i'm bringing it came from the head crossly and the door was closed with a bang oh them girls said mrs railing they're more trouble than they're worth and that's the truth the number of girls i've ad well i couldn't count em they eat you out of ouse and ome and they're always grumbling and you ave to pay em five shillings now they won't come for less and they're not worth it i ave to do all the work meself and they're that particular in their eating i never see anything like it they must have the best of everything just the same as we have if you please mrs railing's face grew redder still as she described the tribulations which attend the mistress of servants she broke another plate to-day bertie she said i shall give her notice this week if she stays here much longer i shan't ave a plate in the ouse there was a knock at the door with a clatter of cups and mrs railing opened it a tall gaunt woman carefully brought in the tray with the tea-things she wore a bonnet and a shabby cloak decorated with black beads oh you've not brought it yourself mrs cooper cried mrs railing hastily taking the tray from her why didn't you let the girl bring it what's she here for and i pay her five shillings a week oh i thought she'd break something mrs cooper gave winnie an inquisitive look and turned to go now you're not going mrs cooper i know where i'm not wanted mrs railing replied the other with a sour glance at bertram now don't say that mrs cooper you don't want her to go bertie do you i should be pleased if you'd stay and have tea mrs cooper said bertram driven into a corner i've ad him in me arms many a time when he was a baby said mrs cooper with a defiant glare at bertram and i've bathed him mrs railing stirred the tea put milk in each cup and poured out i ope you won't mind if it's not very grand said she to winnie apologetically not the queen of england could make a better cup of tea than you mrs railing replied mrs cooper sitting down with a certain aggressiveness well i ave got a silver teapot said mrs railing smiling proudly bertie and louie gave it me only last week for me birthday mrs cooper sniffed and pursed her lips i don't know why you call it silver when it's not all marked mrs railing she said and i know it's not that because i've looked it's electroplate but we call it silver by courtesy laughed bertram i'm a woman as calls a spade a spade answered mrs cooper with sombre dignity the bread was cut with the best intentions but it was thick and plastered with slabs of butter the tea by way of showing hospitality was so strong that no amount of sugar could remove the bitterness i say what a beautiful cake cried bertram i made it with me own ands said mrs railing much gratified there's no one like my mother for making cakes said bertram regaining his spirits which had been damped by the appearance of mrs cooper but this remark was taken by that lady as a deliberate slight to herself you've got no cause to say that bertie she remarked bitterly many's the cake you've eaten of my making in my ouse at shepherd's bush and they was quite good enough for you then you make excellent cakes too mrs cooper he answered but she was not to be so easily appeased i take it very hard that you should treat me like this bertie she added in a lachrymose way and you wouldn't ave been alive to-day if it adn't been for me no that you wouldn't bertie acknowledged his mother 
"'I'll tell you how it was,' said Mrs. Cooper, turning to Winnie. "'I just popped in here to have a chat with Mrs. Railing, and there was Bertie in such a state I never see anything like it. He had convulsions, and he was blue all over, and stiff. Oh, he was a sight, I can tell you. Well, he was only four months old, and Mrs. Railing was in a rare state. You see, he was her first, and she didn't know what to do no more than a cat would.' and I said, it's no good sending for the doctor, Mrs. Railing. I said, he'll be dead before the doctor comes. You put him in a hot bath, I said, with a pinch of mustard in it, and it saved his little life. I will say that for you, Mrs. Cooper. You do know what to do with babies, said Mrs. Railing. And I take it very hard that he should call me a drunken old woman, added Mrs. Cooper, putting a handkerchief to her eyes. I've known you for thirty years, Mrs. Railing, and I ask you, have you ever seen me with more than I can carry? That I haven't, Mrs. Cooper, and you mustn't mind what Bertie says. He didn't mean to speak sharply to you. I beg your pardon, Mrs. Railing, and I never thought I should live to hear Bertie say such things to me. Last time I come here, he said, don't you come to my house again, Mrs. Cooper. You're a drunken old woman. The tears coursed down her cheeks, and she blew her nose loudly and I've had him to stay in my house at Shepherd's Bush over and over again, and I used to wash him meself, and comb his air, and I made a rare lot of him. I take it very hard that he should say I'm not to pop in and have a chat with an old friend when I'm in the neighbourhood. Bertram looked at her anxiously, afraid to speak in case there was a scene, but this, apparently, was just what Mrs. Cooper wanted. "'I've had a very hard life,' she said, with maudlin tears. I've had a lot of trouble with my husband, and I've brought up seven children, and brought em all up to earn their own living. And if I do take a little drop now and then, it's because I want it. And I don't take gin like some people do." This was obviously a home-thrust, for Mrs. Railing, with a gasp, drew herself together like a war-horse, panting for the fray. "'I don't know what you mean by that, Mrs. Cooper, but no one can call me a drunken old woman.' I know all about you, Mrs. Railing, and I know a great deal more than Bertie does, and if he wants to know I'll tell him." Mrs. Railing turned so purple that it was quite alarming. Oh, you're a wicked woman, Mrs. Cooper, and what your husband said to me only the week before last is quite true. Your husband had something to put up with, I lay, and he's told me over and over again what sort of a lady you are. "'Now then, mother, for heaven's sake, don't quarrel with her now,' cried Bertram. "'And what did my husband say to you, Mrs. Railing?' "'Never you mind, Mrs. Cooper. I'm not one to go and repeat what's been said to me privately.' Winnie had watched them with increasing alarm, and now, growing terrified, as there seemed every prospect of a battle royal, stood up. "'Bertram, it's time for me to go away.' "'I'll take you to the station,' he said, pale with anger. Winnie shook hands with Bertram's mother, ruffled and hot, but pointedly ignored Mrs. Cooper. She walked past her as though no one was in the way. When they were in the street, Bertram turned to her with pleading eyes. "'I'm so sorry this has happened, darling. I had no idea that awful person would be here. My mother's the best creature in the world, but she's had a very hard time and like many women of that age, is inclined sometimes to drink a little more than is good for her. My sister and I are trying to get her to become a teetotaler, and Mrs. Cooper leads her on. I've told her never to come to the house, but my mother doesn't like to hurt her feelings. 
she made that horrible scene just to spite me because you were here it doesn't much matter does it said winnie very wearily i'm not going to marry your relations you're not angry with me dearest not at all said winnie forcing a smile to her lips please get me a cab i'll drive home it's too far dearest you must go by train a cab would cost you a fortune well what does it matter she answered irritably i can afford to pay for it i'm afraid there won't be one here you see it's so out of the world must i walk all the way along those dreary roads to the station it's not far they went in silence both of them very unhappy and winnie angry as well angry with herself and with all the world and when at length they came again to the high street the scene in winnie's eye had changed its hue the din of the traffic was insufferable to her ears and the press of people making it difficult to thread one's way irritated her insanely in their faces she saw only a stupid mediocrity and the petty cares which occupied them stamped their features with commonness the gay shops were become sordid and mean jewellers showed silver bangles and silver brooches low-priced and tawdry red and green glass which masqueraded impudently under the beautiful names of emerald and ruby milliners offered the purchaser hats and bonnets in loud colours imitating inexpensively what they thought the fashion of paris other shops exposed the hideous details of commonplace existence pots and pans mangles crockery brushes and brooms all things which artists had touched with their fashioning fingers carpets and furniture pictures and statuettes were cheaply parodied nowhere could be found restraint or modesty but everything was flaunting and pretentious gaudy cheap and vulgar winnie bit her lip to prevent herself from speaking but what she wished to say was this how can you talk of ideals with these people who only want to make a show whose needs are so ignoble and paltry their very faces tell you how little they care for beauty and grace and virtue at the station bertram asked uncertainly whether she would not like him to accompany her to south kensington please not she answered i can get home quite well alone will you access my ticket they had come third class but now she wished to be in a carriage by herself he put her in when the train came and wistfully leaned forward won't you kiss me dearest listlessly with unsmiling mouth she offered her lips he kissed them with eyes painfully yearning but she for the moment the train still lingered kept hers averted i'm so dreadfully tired she said by way of excuse quickly the guard whistled and the train steamed away winnie thankful at last to be alone huddled into the corner as though to hide herself she burst out weeping passionately hopelessly End of chapter nine